As we stand together, let's pray. Jesus, help us to see you in your word this morning, that we would see you as you really are, as glorious and as kind, as wonderful, as trustworthy as you are. Open your word to us and open us up to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, several years ago, here at Truro, we had a guest speaker on a Sunday, uh, Dr. Tim Tennant, who was and still is the president of Asbury Seminary. He was here to preach at all of our Sunday services. You may or may not remember him preaching, but I remember him because of one comment he made to me, a profound comment, but a comment in passing. We were over in the chapel before our five o'clock service that we used to have in there, and I was walking his microphone back to him, and I was helping him get it on and over his ear. We were kind of laughing about, you know, how many people does it take to put on a microphone properly? And I said something to Dr. Tennant like this. I said, you know, the worst thing that could happen would be your microphone would fall off. And he stopped, and he looked at me, and he said, no, Jamie, the worst thing that could happen would be that I wouldn't preach the gospel. The worst thing that could happen would be that I wouldn't preach the gospel. He's right, you know. He's very right. Because we have no other message. There is no other message to preach. We have no other gospel. There is no other gospel to preach. We have no other confidence in life and in death than the confidence of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here this morning, as we come to the end of the book of 1 John, the Apostle John once again preaches the gospel to us. And he's very clear about why. He reminds us again of all that is true about us, all that is given to us, all that is available to us in Christ, so that we would know, that we would have confidence, that we would have assurance even if you just skim uh, these few verses that Donna read to us, verses 13 through 21, it's easy to see the main point that John is making here. Verse 13, that you may know. Verse 15, and if we know. Then a little later in the same verse, we know. He's on a roll here. Now verse 18, we know. Verse 19, we know. Verse 20, and we know. Then a little later in that same verse, so that we may know. John is pretty clear here. Now, John writes this letter, the letter of 1 John, is written to believers, to believers who have experienced division in their church, to believers who have lost some of their fellow brothers and sisters, to believers who have lost some of their leaders, to believers who are trying to figure out how the gospel of Jesus Christ should manifest itself in their community. And at the very end of this letter then, to these Christians who have been through those things, he doesn't say, I write these things to you so that you may do. That you may do. He writes to these believers whose community has been through a difficult and divisive time, sound familiar? So that they would know, that they would have confidence. He preaches the message of the gospel because there is no other message. 
Now, towards the end of John's gospel, earlier in the New Testament, John tells us at the end of chapter 20 why he wrote that book. And he tells us in the gospel according to John, chapter 20, verse 31, that was written, quote, so that you may believe, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that book was written for believers, that they would believe. And now this book is written, he tells us in verse 13, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know. This is why a preacher only really ever has one job, to preach the gospel, so that believers would believe I'm sorry, <laughs> so that non-believers would believe and so that believers would know. So that non-believers would believe and so that believers would know. Our faith, John is saying, is not a faith of wishful thinking. Our faith is not a faith of empty optimism. Our faith is a faith of knowing, of confidence. Because as we'll see, our faith is rooted and grounded in a real risen and reigning Christ. And so John begins this morning by reminding us that Jesus is our confidence. Jesus is our confidence. In just the first three verses of our text this morning, we read all of these things that we know. We can take these things to the bank, John is saying. Verse 13, that those who believe in Jesus have eternal life. Verse 14, we have confidence towards Jesus that we can approach him in prayer. First half of verse 15, that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know these things. Second half of verse 15, they'll grant our requests. John wants believers, he wants us to know that Jesus is our confidence. Yes, eternally, but also here and now on this earth. So that if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in him, if you are a believer, you would not just intellectually comprehend Christ that you wouldn't just know things about Christ, but that you would really, and John means really, you would really experience Christ, and that your experience of Christ would manifest itself in confidence. Confidence when you wake up. Confidence when you go to work. Confidence on the school bus. Confidence in the classroom. Confidence in the hospital room. Confidence in your home. Confidence not in yourself. But in Jesus, John is not preaching self-confidence here. This is not the gospel of self-confidence. This is Jesus' confidence. That you know you belong to him. That you know your destiny is secure. That you know that you are so loved by him, so accepted by him, so heard by him, that you have access to the very heart of God at every moment. Read verse 14 with me. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. John writes as a pastor here to encourage believers that we have access to the very heart of God. But he also writes carefully. Remember that John is the beloved disciple. He was very, very close to Jesus. And so he writes carefully to make sure that his teaching is totally in line with the teaching of Jesus. And he's teaching us that our confidence is not in what we ask, 
but our confidence is in God's perfect will. What a travesty it would be if we got literally everything we asked for. What a mess we would make of our lives if God gave us everything we asked for. So what grace then that in God's kindness he bends our will to his will. That the more we walk with him, the more confident we become in his perfect will. Look with me at verse 15 then. If we know, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, remember his caveat according to his will, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. Now you may be thinking, okay, Jamie, you're saying this is supposed to give me confidence, but this is actually why I don't have confidence because I prayed for the cancer to be healed, because I prayed for my son to come home, because I prayed for money to pay the mortgage, and God didn't answer my prayer. And you're telling me, and John is telling me, that I'm supposed to have confidence that God will give me whatever I ask? Well, he didn't give me what I asked for. There is no easy answer to this. And the last thing you need is a preacher to stand up here try to give you some easy answer to hard questions. But what I can give us all is a deeper answer, and it's this, that our confidence is not to be fixed upon our will or our wants or even our designs. Our confidence is to be fixed upon Jesus and upon his perfect will because we know he hears us. We know he loves us. And we know that he knows best And we become more and more confident in this deeper truth. Even as we walk through valleys. Even as we walk through lack. Even as we walk through mystery. We become more and more confident in his perfect design. His perfect will. The longer we walk with him. And the more we grow to trust him. I don't know how many times you might drive during the week on Fairfax Boulevard. And you pass what used to be Paul VI High School, and now is this massive construction site. I drive past it about once a day or so, and it's chaos right now. It's chaos. Some things are being preserved. You still see that front brick facade kind of there in front, but it's chaos. Some things are being demolished. Some things are being built. There's some underground things being laid. Sometimes it gets very muddy. It's chaos there. And when I drive by Paul VI, I could say, This thing is a huge mess. It's a big, ugly, muddy mess. And I would be temporarily right. But I would be fundamentally wrong. Because there's a master plan. An architectural plan. There are blueprints. It's all mapped out according to a master plan. And the workers there on site or the people like me driving by need to have confidence, need to have trust in the master plan. The same principle applies to our lives. The same principle applies to the church and to this church. That what may at times look like chaos, what may at times look like a mess, maybe we're temporarily right, but we're fundamentally wrong because there is a master plan. And our confidence is in the master plan. Our confidence is in Jesus. 
Our confidence, the longer we walk with the Lord, the longer we come to know him as a person becomes less grounded in what we think is best. More and more grounded in his perfect will that knows what's best. Jesus is our confidence. My old boss, John Yates, used to quote his old mentor, Alf Stanway, to say that when God says yes, it's a love yes. When God says no, it's a love no. I like that. We can be confident in his love even when we don't understand his ways. When I was in middle school, I had a youth pastor who introduced me to the music of Rich Mullins. He was a Christian recording artist in the 80s and 90s. He was really well known for this song he wrote called Awesome God. Many of you could probably sing from heart. And uh, one of the songs he wrote that wasn't nearly as well known was a song that I love, and it's got a funny name. It's called Maker of Noses. And I love it because the chorus says this. They said, boy, just follow your heart. But my heart just led me into my chest. They said, follow your nose. But the direction changed every time I went and turned my head. And they said, boy, just follow your dreams. But my dreams are only misty notions. But the father of hearts and the maker of noses and the giver of dreams, he's the one I have chosen, and I will follow him. So in life, and death, and sickness, and health, in God's yeses, and in God's noes, Jesus is our confidence. John wants us to know and experience this. And next he wants us to know that Jesus turns death into life. Jesus turns death into life. And he does this individually, and he does this corporately. Like John has done elsewhere in, the, in this book, he presents a gospel truth, and then he immediately applies it. But he doesn't apply it in an easy area. He doesn't use easy illustrations. He uses hard ones. Because he wants us to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ goes into hard places. The gospel of Jesus Christ goes into dark places. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. So now in verses 16 through 18, John applies the confidence we have in Christ to say that then we should be concerned for one another. We should guard ourselves and our community from sin and pray that God gives life where there is death. Look with me at verses 16 through 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay, so what's John talking about here? Well, first of all, he's talking about the sins of fellow believers. Believers who have been saved. They've been saved. And so while they still sin, while we as believers still sin, we are no longer dead in our sins, to borrow the language of Ephesians 2. We're no longer dead in our sins. All wrongdoing is sin, he says clearly in verse 17, in case we misunderstand him. But we have been saved from death. For the moment, John is not addressing how we are to approach the sins of those who are still dead in their sins, who have not been saved, and unless they turn to Christ, will perish in their sins. 
He's not talking about that right now. He's limiting his discussion to how we talk about sin in the community. But he's very clear in verse 17 that all wrongdoing is sin. He doesn't minimize sin. By saying that some sins lead to death and others don't is not to categorize some sins as worse than others and some sins as less bad than others because all all wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death, not because the sin doesn't deserve death, but because for the believer, that sentence of death was already paid by Jesus on the cross. You probably finished the sentence for me. The wages of sin is death. The little sins you think no one notices, deserving of death. The big sins you think are a big deal, deserving of death. All sin is mortal sin. All sins are fatal sins. But for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, those wages of sin are death. And so for the believer, sin no longer leads to death because Jesus paid that debt totally and finally once and for all. But with that in mind, John is saying to us believers, hey, where sin is in your heart or in your community, there is the aroma of death where you see it in yourself, or when you see it in your community. Take it so seriously that you take it to God. And because you have such confidence in Jesus, ask him, and he will bring the aroma of life where there once was the aroma of death. In verse 18, he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. And it's interesting to me that when he says that, that we've been born of God, In the original language, it's written in the present tense. This indicates that our being born of God has an ongoing result. We know we're saved once. We're not constantly being saved again and again and again and again. We're saved once. But we are constantly being made new, regenerated. Being born of God has an ongoing result. So where there is sin in my heart or where there is sin in a church community, John is saying that it needs to be regenerated. It needs to bring life to where there is that area of death. John's saying you can be born again. You can be saved by grace. You can have been a Christian for 70 years, but there can still be death in you. There can be the aroma of death in you. And when I see it in you, John tells me to pray that God turns it into life in you. And when you see it in me, John tells you to pray the same for me. John is talking to the church here. He's talking to the body, and he's saying to ask Jesus to bring his life into where there is still death, where there is bitterness, where there is deceit, where there is anger, where there is secrecy, where we won't talk to one another, where we won't even look at one another in the eye where we won't humble ourselves before one another, as Jesus himself humbled himself on the cross, John is saying, these are symptoms of death in you. And God is so kind to us and so patient with us that by his Holy Spirit, God keeps putting his finger where it hurts until we repent, until we intercede, Until we get on our knees and say, Jesus, bring your life where there is death. Start with me. John wants us to know, to know, 
to know that Jesus can do this. Jesus did it on Easter Sunday, and he can do it again. Jesus is our confidence, and Jesus turns death into life. Our hope and our confidence here is not in our ability to keep on from sinning. Our hope and our confidence is that Jesus keeps us. John tells us this in the second half of verse 18, that he who was born of God, that's Jesus, Jesus who was born of God protects us. And the evil one does not touch us. So then even though, as verse 19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and the picture there that John paints is of the world kind of lying passively in the devil's arms, not even fighting back, that the evil one can't touch us fatally. Our hope is not that we hold on to Jesus, but that he holds on to us. Our hope is not that we do the work, but that Jesus finishes his work in us. Our hope is not that we keep from sinning, but that Jesus keeps us. That's the benediction, the end of the book of Jude, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. The evil one can tempt us, he can assault us, he can prowl around us, but he can't touch us. He can't penetrate the shield of Christ himself. So we've considered that Jesus is our confidence. Jesus turns death into life. And now finally in verse 20, that Jesus is true. Jesus is true. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come, has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John was writing to believers. He was writing to believers who had recently experienced division in their church, to believers who had seen their brothers and sisters walk away, to believers whose leaders had failed them. And he says to them, and he says to us, you can trust Jesus. What do you do when your church disappoints you or when it hurts you or when it lets you down? You trust Jesus. What do you do when you've been wounded? You've been shaken. You don't know who you can trust. You trust Jesus. What do you do when, whether it's been here at this church or somewhere else, you have experienced real pain and you don't know if you can be vulnerable again? John tells us, trust Jesus. Because he doesn't end his letter by saying, you can know about Jesus. Or you can know things. He says it in verse 20, we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. This gospel is for unbelievers that they would believe. And this gospel is for believers that we would know him, a person, the person of Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of God's nature that we would know the real, resurrected, and reigning Jesus, not just intellectually, but really know him. And that getting to know him, we would know that he is true. And by grace, we would know that we are in him. 
Now, the statement of John's here at the end, that we would know that we are in him who is true, in God's son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. That statement there in verse 20, this is one of the clearest, most striking statements in the entire New Testament about Jesus being God. Jesus is the true God and eternal life. We say this in our creed every week. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. And it's in light of this Jesus that John concludes his letter in verse 21 by saying, little children, keep yourself from idols. He's saying, little children, in this corner, we have Jesus, the high king of heaven. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Crown him with many crowns. Praise my soul, the king of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring. He's the church's one foundation. On Christ the solid rock we stand. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And in this corner, we have your little idols. Your dead, lifeless, puny, pathetic, little idols. And at the end of his letter, John says to us, little children, keep yourself from idols. He says, trust in Jesus. Trust in his power. Trust in his grace. Trust in his glory. Trust in his gospel. Trust in his good news. Trust in his message. Because there is no other message. There is no other God. There is no other who is true. There is no other who is faithful. There is no other who is worthy of your trust and your confidence, trust in him. And the worst thing that could happen would be that I wouldn't preach the gospel to you. And the worst thing that could happen would be if we didn't know that it's true. It's true. Do you know that it's true? Do you know that it's true? <laughs> Do you know that it's true? So let's live like it. And let's die like it. Let's stand together and pray. Jesus, shine your light. Jesus, shine your light. Be exalted in this place. Be exalted in our lives. Be exalted in this church. Jesus, give us increasing confidence in you. Where we lack it, give it to us, Lord, by your spirit. Give us confidence in the strength and in the might of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, where there is death in us, Jesus, where there is death in our hearts, where there is death in this church, Jesus, turn it into life. Bring your power of resurrection into this church and start with us. And Jesus, remind us that you are true. When all around our soul gives way, you still are all our hope and stay. And Jesus, remind us that you are our hope in life and in death. Amen.